everyone. Welcome to the Faith of Our Farmers podcast, the podcast devoted to the faith side of agriculture. Each week, myself, Frank Hartley, along with my co-host, Chris Elliott, dive into how our faith plays out for those of us each day that are involved in agriculture. Some weeks, we have guests that'll share their testimonies. Other weeks, we introduce you to ministries that use agriculture to share God's love. And sometimes we'll talk about biblical subjects that tie into our daily work in agriculture. Let's see where God's going to take us to this week. Hold on, let's go. Well, hi, Chris. Morning, Frank. We're back for another episode this week. How's things down in Fulton County? Well, it's beautiful here this morning. We're getting a nice shower of rain. It looks like spring. The red bud is just starting to show some purple color, which to me is always one of the most exciting times of the year because I love springtime. But when the red bud comes out, it just sort of means that that everything's going to be all right. And knowing that as we record this, it's Holy Week and we'll have Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday when we think of the crucifixion of our Savior and his resurrection to new life, just grateful for the life and the salvation that he gives us. Amen to that. I, it is. It's it's so neat to see spring uh, and see the new buds coming out, the new plants, um, uh, the new life. And again, with, with our Easter time coming, it really reminds us of that. And if nothing else, it helps the mental health side of my farmer uh, job and hat to uh, see that new life and to realize that, okay, spring is here. I'm not tied up on my mountain anymore with COVID and sub-zero degrees and all that kind of stuff. So uh, very exciting time. So, Chris, this week uh, we have Dr. Val Farmer on with us, and I think he will be able to bring us a whole lot of neat insight into some of the work that he's done over time. So, Dr. Farmer, welcome. Well, thanks, uh, Frank, and uh, thank you, Chris, for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. I consider it an honor, and I applaud what you're doing. Well, we're excited to have you on today just because of the uh, expertise that you bring into the area of mental health, but also from the the Christian uh, spirituality aspect as well, and farm transitioning, and it's just a, a wealth of resources that you bring into your work. I looked at your website, and I was really excited to see all the things that you're involved with, and almost looks like you might be somewhat of a, um, a jack-of-all-trades when it comes to that side of agriculture one of the things that uh that i i I heard a man say well how do you how do you uh, start a successful business and uh i think he worked for a company that's uh, no longer in business now (laughs) radio shack and uh anyway he said find a need and fill it with quality and and then I added my own little piece to it, and that is market that your the, the your service or your quality product to the people that need it. So you need a combination of all those things. And 
when I, um, you're going to get into my background in a minute, but what I uh, did was I moved to uh, Nebraska to do an internship in clinical psychology and planted myself in the middle of the Midwest, uh, not exactly in Omaha or Lincoln, but in a, a smaller city. And, uh, and then part of my training was meeting rural families and, and uh, talking about their lives. And it was a whole lot different than the training that I had received in my graduate school education. The, the issues were different and it was, uh, it was just an eye opener for me, the kinds of things that I needed to learn and, and know about in order to be effective in my work. And uh, farmers uh, uh, didn't like having to come and spend three or four sessions trying to educate their mental health professional about what farming was all about before the mental health professional could even understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and along the way, uh, a farm woman from uh, Desmet, South Dakota, um, came to one of my a talk that I gave and at a state fair, and then she wrote back to the Farm Journal in Philadelphia saying, what you need is uh, somebody like this to uh, ta- talk about farming. They sent out a reporter who had roots in South Dakota, so he was more than happy to come, and he interviewed me. Uh, it was uh, something called, uh, when uh, his first article was When Marriage and Farming Clash, and the second one was uh, When My Farm Becomes Ours, and then I've added a couple of other topics to the general area, uh, life in rural communities and the uh, complicated social networks that, that take place. And, and the uh, third one was, or fourth one was farm stress and the huge impact that has on farmers when everything is on the line, uh, when financial downturns happen. And, and so, and, and, and to wrap up, uh, I started a newspaper column, or I started writing for a magazine, and then I st- uh, started a newspaper column. And the, the three things that I brought to the table uh, were, uh, I was a psychologist that could write, <laughs> which meant, uh, <laughs> no, no jargon, none of the, none of the Eastern liberal education uh, uh Alderall that that people could had to wade through to even understand things. The the second one was uh, the uh, the fact that uh, there was a huge need for rural people to have someone writing about their lives, and ha- instead of having everything distilled through the me- urban media, and and uh, so that it was relevant that there was a huge need. And if, people tried to talk about these things locally in their local community, they would be uh, considered rabble rousers or disloyal or something. But if the information was coming from outside of their local community, boy, they could embrace it and they could raise it with their spouses and and neighbors. And it become a a legitimate topic instead of something that no one could talk about. Right, and, right. and then the third one was, and this is where I think it's relevant to you guys and what you're doing. Uh, 
I was writing from a, a faith-based perspective, uh, conservative Midwestern values, but uh, Judeo-Christian ethic underneath everything I was writing. And I was uh, true to my faith as I could be without uh, injecting my own bias into the writing. And so I, I wasn't too explicit about this, but people could figure out by reading me that they were comfortable with reading about the things or trusting the things that I was writing. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that was probably the, the key to my writing career was that I was a writer that was resonated with the rural audience. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that makes such a huge difference. I know uh, just some very minor work that I did, uh, here in Pennsylvania with mental health and agriculture, uh, that was always one of the things that we came back to was the, there was lots of folks that were willing to help, but they either a talked over everybody's head or they did not have a clue about farming and what it took to be a farmer. And so it was really tough at first as we were trying to pull different people in to say, are you willing to be a counselor and, and help with this situation. And uh, it, it was quite a struggle. And I know other states talking to other people have had that same struggle too. So for sure. I, I paid my dues in a sense that I actually practiced, well, I've been practicing all along clinical psychology, but I, I worked um, from 1974, my internship year to, uh, to 1984 before the newspaper column started and uh, in doing the profession. So I really learned the, what I was talking about. So I had a, some authority. I wasn't like a newcomer just writing about what other people had written. I had experienced it in my counseling and I could see the nuances of, uh, of what people were talking about. So it's like I needed the clinical experience before I could be a writer uh, that could pass this information on. Well, I think that's an important part of, of who you are. You know, it's not just a, a theoretical, you know, writing from up on an ivory tower somewhere that you pass this information esoterically along to other people, but you're actually there with the people where the rubber meets the road and you understand all of the uh, little interesting family dynamics, I guess it'd be the yeah. mystic way of, of putting that. Well, I just skipped ahead a little bit and we're in the uh, interview, but now you can go back and talk about how I got to the spot where I'm at. But, but I wanted to make the point that uh, I'm very, I would have loved to have been more forthright about my, my gospel and my background, but I, I just didn't dare. And if I did, if I were a writer today, I would be canceled. <laughs> because, <laughs> Which because, is a scary uh, thought. They, they wouldn't like the fact that I have opinions that go against the contravailing ethics or morality of society. And, and I got some flack from time to time, but most people were generally supportive of what I was doing, and, and it was a, the rare situation where people were criticizing my work, and, and I, I could see how, how delicate my role was, and I walked that fine line for a long time.
and I and I wished I could have been more like what you guys are doing and just laid it all out there. But uh, I had to had to couch it in terms that that made it uh, acceptable for the whole community or the newspaper editors, basically. Uh, well, that, that was my question. Was the flack you were getting coming from the readership or from the editorial staff of those you worked for? The, the flack was coming uh, some, from some minority of the readership, uh, but most of the farm families and rural community people and even the editors knew this is the kind of column that worked for them and, and the audiences they serve. They kind of are the, the mediator between themselves and, and their community by allowing certain writers to have access to their paper. And uh, okay. so generally I had a great career, but I don't know if I would have now, basically. <laughs> My wife reminds me that you, you couldn't write today uh, the same, same things I wrote. I, I had a, a woman write and accuse me of being a pro-natalist, and I didn't know what a pro-natalist was except <laughs> someone who believes in having children. <laughs> and, and that was a horrible. Thing that I wow. Okay. <laughs> Where do I go with this? Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, there was a uh, an article. There was a, a the late mid eighties or so there was a, an FBI and uh, some groups that were going around talking about witchcraft and how powerful it was and Satanists and, and they were over dramatizing the issue. And I didn't know it. I was just taking their, their, uh, what they were saying at face value. And, uh, and I wrote a column set more or less endorsing the fact that this is a problem in society that, that people need to be aware of. And then I got a, a letter from a witch, <laughs> a male witch, <laughs> oh, wow. who wanted to have an interview with me. And then we met and we had an interview. And then I was able to to put the the fact that they they felt they were being singled out or persecuted and that there, there wasn't enough any facts based on what was going on at the time. So I, I learned that I could, I had, had to learn to trust my sources and, and, uh, yeah. and, and be very good at uh, who, who I wrote about instead of just uh, thinking everything, at, uh, taking everything at face value. Well, could you share just a little bit about your faith journey and, and how, you, how that played well? And obviously you've touched on a lot of that now already, but uh, how, how God got you to the point you are today? Well, he did do that. I, I don't know that I consciously started out to be a clinical psychologist that uh, served rural people and the rural community. It wasn't my plan. Uh, the, uh, and and a, a lot of the events of my life kind of propelled me along, uh, even though I wasn't choosing it. It it seemed right, and and in the end, it turned out to be wonderful. So there was a lot of trials and hardships uh, along the way, and and I didn't understand it at the time. But in retrospect, it was part of a bigger plan that I had in mind for myself, and it, and it worked out. Uh, I was born in Montana, uh, 
I'm 80 years old. Uh, I grew up as a, a boy in a, on a family farm uh, near Fairfield, Montana, which is about, I don't even know now, 30 or 40 miles from Great Falls, uh, Montana. Okay. Uh, our, uh, my father was trying to make ends meet. He was a sheep shearer and he would be gone in the spring. And then there were several dams being built in uh, uh, Fort Peck in Montana or uh, in Oregon. Uh, and so he would be gone and my mother and our large family, uh, it became eight children. I was the sixth out of eight. So I had a lot of older siblings that were uh, six years older than myself and and my younger two uh, brothers. So it was like two different families growing up on the family farm. And, and we enjoyed the boyhood experiences of being on a farm and ponies and, and the outdoors and climbing on roofs that we shouldn't be on and, and uh, <laughs> other letting the air out of my, our father's uh, tractor tires and uh, feeling some wrath about that. <laughs> uh, but uh, no skills and no farm background that prepared me to be a farmer. And, and, uh, and at age eight, we lost the farm uh, to the FHA, Farmers Home Administration loan program or we anyway and i didn't learn about this until my father's funeral when he was uh, 86 years old that the reason we left the farm was that because of farm stress and loan and debt issues and and lo and behold my what i turned out to be in life was a clinical psychologist ministering to people who had loan and debt problems that were creating ma major changes in their lives. So I moved, we moved to Great Falls and, and I finished my elementary years there and then uh, moved on to uh, Seattle, Tacoma and then Seattle. I went to high school in Seattle and my father had a job at a, a meatpacking plant in uh Seattle and, and my brother and I went down and uh, set up sheep and uh, tied wool and tromped wool while he was uh, shearing the sheep. And so we had our little bit of agriculture right in the middle of Seattle. Uh, wow. And that was one of the jobs that I had as a, a high school. And we were poor uh, and uh, we uh, struggled but but and and i picked beans and cherries and and fruit in washington as part of um, my mother was resourceful and strong and and really made sure that that uh, we were we learned how to work and we were contributing to the family but it wasn't a an ideal family farm and it didn't turn out to be a family farm it was a the divine uh uh intervention and, and the fact that from that beginning I I turned out to have the profession that I did. Uh, as far as a uh, uh, faith journey, uh, 
I graduated from high school in uh, 1958 uh, and uh, had a scholarship to BYU, Brigham Young University, but I delayed it a year and went to work for Boeing as an aircraft mechanic and then uh, joined the Air National Guard in uh, Washington State. And uh, this was in between the Korean War and Vietnam. So it was the, the perfect six years <laughs> for me to serve my country. And then, be, and, and then I didn't have to face the draft in uh, 64 and 65 when I, when I would have been prime uh, candidate to, to go to Vietnam. So it, it worked out that way. Uh, I uh, was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. I still am, but the uh, Latter-day Saints as a boy. And, and uh, I uh, had these uh, older uh, siblings and especially an older brother who was a, a football star and a, and a larger than life personality that uh, took an interest in me and my brothers, my younger brothers, and, and served as a big brother uh, to us in helping us see a future and, and cared about us in a way that no ordinary college uh, sophomore or junior football star would ever think of doing, it seems like, that he he was so family oriented. And then I had older sisters also that took an interest. So, so it, it wasn't like, uh, even though my father wasn't a strong uh, uh, influence in my life, I had other people, and especially my mother, provide that rock solid religious foundation and, and, and uh, uh, values for my life. And I, and, I, and I attended church all along the way, even though I was uh, poor and maybe not socially uh, adept as I should have been for, considering my background, uh, but uh, I grew up in a minority area of, uh, of uh, Seattle. It was mostly uh, Italians uh, from, uh, it was like a a mini ethnic world, but Italians, uh, Japanese, and Chinese, and some um, uh, black, uh, and and then poor white people, <laughs> and and it was a fun high school. Everybody belonged. It was it was not like we had any uh, prejudices or anything. It was it, to me race relations was just normal, <laughs> and uh, it was a special a special time. I made friends uh, and. Uh, and it was uh, a good uh, high school experience. Uh, I also had a, a chipped tooth and I wore glasses and I was uh, more of a geek than I was uh, any, anything else. So I was on the fringe of the popular group, but, but I belonged and, and it felt good to, to have be accepted, uh, not, knowing, not knowing what I didn't know. <laughs> Uh, and I, uh, part of our faith, a, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is to, uh, to uh, go on a mission uh, for the church uh, between the ages of, uh, at that time it was 19 to 
25 or 26. You could either go during college or after college. Uh, uh, there was a certain time limit when they they were mostly wanting young men and young women to do that. Uh, and so I went to college uh, for a year. Uh, my brother invited uh, me and my younger brother over to Hawaii with him, and we spent some time, and I had some good experiences with him. And uh, and then it became time for me to serve a mission, and I, and I wanted to know th that my mission experience was was uh, a, a truthful experience for me and I needed to be more uh, uh, knowledgeable and, and, and have a firm testimony of what I was doing before I w went on a mission. So I, a friend of mine and I uh, arranged uh, a trip to uh, Kauai and, uh, and we had a, a pilot uh, uh, arranged to drop food on us, in on us on Kalalau Beach in, in the Hawaiian Islands. And then we hiked uh, 11 miles into the beach uh, to have our solitude and, and, and some prayer. And, and, and it was a, a spiritual experience that was designed for each of us individually. And so once we got to the valley, we did our own thing. Kind of a response that you had there to your existential crisis. Yes, <laughs> and and I needed to, I needed to have my existential crisis in order for me to do what I wanted to do, and whatever when, what I expected to do, and what other people expected me to do. So, uh, uh, the uh, the pilot didn't drop his food on schedule, and we ran into the a doctor, a black doctor from the Virgin Islands, who spent six months of of his year isolated in Kalalau Valley, living off the land. And then the other six months, he would be back in, in his country or the Virgin Islands practicing medicine. I don't know whether it was the British Virgin Islands or the uh, US Virgin Islands, but uh, so he was called the hermit of Kalalau Valley. And he saw us, took us in, uh, he lived in a cave and he, he served a, a, a wonderful meal to us. Uh, he said, at my table, there has to be love, beauty, and order. And, and he said, and it was just exquisite what he did. And he had goat's meat stew, and it was, it was a, one of the best meals that we ever had. Uh, and I thought about, you know, that what he described there is something that I've remembered all my life, that, uh, that that's the way hospitality should happen uh and That's then amazing. i i went off and and uh read scriptures and prayed and and uh and i and it was a fasting experience also and it and, and i had a what i thought was a quest for knowledge turned out to be a prayer of repentance <laughs> and then and then other things and then I had to do a certain amount of reading to to uh, make sure that I was doing my part uh, in in this preparation and I, I got the answer that I was looking for and and it, and it made all the difference in the world I had that as an anchor for the the trials of life and the in any 
challenges or doubts or other things that came along that that I could get faithfully do what I uh, felt and uh, knew. And so then I served a two-year, two-and-a-half-year mission to Central America. Uh, And in Central America, I lived in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, and and, uh, preached uh, the gospel and had wonderful experiences and have a great love for the Central American people and and uh, and then came back uh, to BYU. Uh, they, I was inclined to study philosophy, but they didn't have a a philosophy major. Uh, thank goodness, because <laughs> uh, they needed something more practical, and I needed something more practical. So psychology was the closest thing to it. <laughs> and I, so I graduated in psychology. Uh, and I uh, got married also uh, along that time. I, I dated my wife uh, at BYU and then uh, we got married the summer of 1966. And, and then I lived in Sacramento, California for four years. Uh, knowing that I what I wanted was to practice psychology but but not yet so to speak I I needed to establish myself financially and to uh, uh, have some life experiences and I worked as a probation officer and as a uh, social worker in a mental health clinic uh, and I saw some very talented psychiatrists uh, some of them I respected and really appreciated and others uh, I could see how wildly different people can be in practicing that profession. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And then I applied, uh, applied for graduate school and and I was naive. I applied to three graduate schools, uh, the University of Arizona and UCLA. And I even forget the third one. and I was lucky enough to get into University of Arizona. So here I was uh, at the University of Arizona, uh, and their clinical psychology department wasn't very strong, uh, but I did have some great cross-cultural experiences. I worked at a uh, what they call a Chicano or Mexican-American mental health center and family practice, and, and I could do some therapy mostly it was English but occasionally I tried it in Spanish and found out how hard that was uh, uh, and then I worked at the Papago reservation or the what they call the Aotum people uh, out at cells and I had a two-year uh, consultantship with the mental health people out there and and I would travel out there once a week so I had this cross-cultural experience of of working with Native American people, with Mexican American people, and then I had uh, international experience in Central America, and I I knew culture and how powerful that was. And and then um, and this is one of those accidents of fate. Uh, a friend of mine in graduate school had gone a year earlier to Norfolk, Nebraska, uh, on an internship, and he came back raving about it. And one of the things he raved about it was uh, 
how much money they paid, uh, not necessarily all the clinical things that were happening there. But uh, and I had we had three children by then, uh, and uh, we I was attracted to the idea of applying to a, an internship that had money uh, as a stipend and. And uh, so I ended up in Nebraska, and that introduced me to the Midwest, where I I came and I never left. The uh, the uh, Nixonian uh, recession uh, of seventy four seventy five came out just at the time I was trying to find a job in California, Arizona, or or West Coast places that I was familiar with, and None of those panned out, but my, my job turned out, the job after my internship turned out to be in Mitchell, South Dakota, uh, practically the only place that would have me. And I became a part of a mental health center. And then three years later, I became a, uh, a uh, mental health center director in uh, oh, wow. South and, and, and so even though my graduate career started at age 30, by by age 33, I was the head of a mental health center. And wow. Serving rural people and, and having outreach. Uh, I had outreach to the mental, uh, to the Indian people in South Dakota, as well as the, the rural farmers. I would travel out and own stress and, and, and have my own priorities in line and because I could get so wrapped up in everything that all of the opportunities that were out there that I, I, I could do it overboard and not pay attention to the things that I really did. So uh, one of the things that I've learned, uh, is I'm sure you'll want to get into, is the fact that misplaced priorities in farming can be very pro- powerful and can lead people down paths they don't want to go and and it's the same for anybody in life that if you don't if you're not really sure about what what life is all about and what your purpose is then then uh there other things become too important and you don't pay attention to the things that you need to uh so i'm going to pause and let, let you uh, ask well, questions. That, that's good i mean we, we really appreciate the background because that just helps us to understand who you are and, and how you got to be where you are and that obviously plays into the whole role that you have have been here and filled in in agriculture and mental health and and so forth but you know it's just kind of fascinating in thinking about all of that and how that your faith does impact the work that you do and and just kind of, uh, well, I guess maybe Frank should ask the question here because I'm starting to lose my train of thought. But um, but just thinking about how this all plays in agriculture today, and how do we, through this podcast, but through our faith in general, do we want to be a, a help and a blessing to farmers as they work through a lot of those issues? And and I think that I, there's a word I picked up on what you just said there about priorities. And how so often in life there are some things that we know are really more important than other things, like family and and faith and so forth. And yet we get so wrapped up in the day-to-day work of being farmers and uh, or you know business people, whatever that might be, and it ends up overcoming the things that are really more important. Kind of the tyranny of the urgent, maybe, be one way of saying that. 
Well, I I agree with that. And the uh, the tyranny of the urgent is that farmers always have urgent. <laughs> and uh, that's I, for sure. I, <laughs> I and I I heard a psychologist uh, describe this once, and it was beautiful, and I, it made a lot of sense to me that. Uh, farmers are like a, a mother with a newborn. That's uh, there's, there's so much power in that nurturing impulse that y- they just can't help themselves. That, that that new baby comes first, and they're so responsive to its needs. And they and and then the woman that did this uh, compared a farmer to uh, he's he has the same role nurturing young life, whether it's crops. Uh, or animals or newborns or uh, making sure that things happen in the right way and, and, and to accept and, and take that protective role. Uh, and so it's easy to justify, uh, or I don't know if it's easy to justify, but it, it makes a lot of sense that his role is to be out there taking care of other things, but he doesn't understand enough the role of nurturing his own wife or his own children or uh, being a part of a community and and being a good neighbor and serving others that the power behind his farming become crowds out other things and even crowds out his own personality in terms of uh, recreation and fun and and uh, socializing with others, a, a person can become so devoted to the task in front of them that they become what uh, some people can call uh, uh, workaholism or workaholics, and 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 that that is one of the seductions of agriculture is that they can uh, a farmer can justify whatever they're doing because there's a reason it takes a woman that marries into a farm family about five years to educate themselves on when a farmer's blowing smoke and when he's really describing reality. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And and, and then she can be a real partner to him and help him self-correct along the way so that he doesn't get too far out of line with the things that are really important. Uh, Well, I... I uh, ended my column in 2012, and one of the only, I've written about two columns since then uh, as guest columns, and and one of them was called The Greatest Mistake Farmers Can Make, and it, it, it talks about the uh, importance of, of, the importance of having religious values, spirituality, uh, is uh, usually, uh, <laughs> I don't know how anybody gets to it, probably takes one. <laughs> to, well, to I was just going to ask you that. Actual uh, loss of a farm or a threatened loss of a farm that, that brings people to that crisis of, well, what's really important and who are we anyway and can we survive? Uh, aren't we just enough ourselves uh, or or whatever skills that you have can be transferred to another environment and and that there's more important things in life than farming and and so that's that's one of the messages is uh, 
uh, you know, you love what you're doing, but uh, you need to uh, you need to extend your love to other things. And uh, you you asked me about uh, uh, a favorite scripture or one that I use a lot in my work is is, uh, is John uh, uh, first first John four nineteen. Uh, uh, we love him because he first loved us mm -hmm. and uh, we need to experience that love of Jesus Christ and then his expectation is that if you're my disciples love one another and so right. people need to experiment with love in their life and giving that love freely and to look for opportunities and 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 not be so uh, seduced by uh, local prestige in the community or doing everything right or being the the biggest or the best or uh, always making improvement when you're when you're actually part of you needs to experiment with love and how powerful that can be in people's lives and, and that's what our that's what Christ expects of us well, the great commandment is that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and spirit and strength. And then the second is like unto it that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Right. And the emphasis is obviously much more on God and others than it is on myself. Right. Well, uh, you know, I went through the, the farm crisis years. Actually, it was the beginning of my writing career from mm -hmm. 1984. Uh, to uh, 87, 88, there was some drought years in there also. And uh, one of the uh, one of the things that uh, that I uh, learned during that time, the the people on the front lines that that were noticing people that were not at school functions. They were hiding out from their community. Their emotions were too close to the edge. They were thinking suicidal thoughts. They were, there, there was depression. The, the, the impulses to withdraw from uh, the, the coffee, the, the long table at the co corner cafe. Right. And, and their people are missing in action. And the people that were showing love were people that had uh, reaching out to others, approaching them, getting them to talk and verbalize what's going on in themselves. It wasn't the mental health professionals that turned it around. It was loving, caring people that were aware of each other and, and, and had been through something like that themselves. And they had learned something and they knew when people were in trouble and they could spot them and they could join in helping them. That's fascinating. Uh, so... Uh, there, there is a local role for reaching out to people and, and keeping your eyes open and and uh, and seeing who's at church and who isn't at church and what who's used to be regular and and what's what's going on and to and to find out what's going on and, and be of service to them. Well, I I think that the uh, the role of the pastor or the minister and, and then the uh, the main community minded people that are a part of the the church can have an ad attitude of of uh, making uh talking about real problems <laughs> and and not trying to normalize keeping 
the rural the ethic of the rural community is uh, uh, you don't want other people to know your business <laughs> and and to keep problems a secret and so all people are out there going underground with with problems and there's real help out there and the the local churches could need to know the resources who who are the real helpers and then the, and then have people that are good at outreach doing the outreach and 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 keeping track of of uh, who who isn't at at church and what's going on in this person's life or I heard a rumor that we better check on somebody or uh, the, 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 there's a more of a, an awareness that real people are having real problems and they 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 until they actually normalize getting help they're not going to get help and they need someone to actually break through and help them get help before they even know they need help. Uh, uh, maybe not that much. They know they need help, but they, they don't know where to turn. And, they, and there's the, the rural ethic of keeping your family business or your dirty laundry hidden is, is too powerful. And, and not enough of them know the uh, resources that are out there that, that could play a role, even reading. Uh, one of the things that, that I loved about being a columnist was that I was putting hand material in the hands of people that could read. They process it, they think about it, and then they they know that they can need help, and then and then they know that there's other resources out there. So the more you can get people to think, when people are depressed, they stop thinking, they stop taking action. Right. And what what right. what you need uh, to do is get people to be problem solvers again. And farmers are the greatest problem solvers there are. They're just not looking at the right problem, which is themselves, which means they're scared to death of what's, they, they haven't talked about enough about what's going on inside of them to know that, that uh, talking about it helps them formulate a plan for doing something about it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, I, I love talking to you guys and if I can be of help to you, I'm glad. I, I, uh, I've been eight years out of the limelight, and and people soon forget. There's other people, competent people, that have taken my place, and I don't worry about that. But I, I, I do know that I can still do a, a lot of good in the world, and if if I can help you do good, then that's what I, I I'm I'm for it. <laughs> I guess the. The preacher's way of saying that would be, you still have a few sermons in you. <laughs> I am discovering more. I'm discovering more as time passes, and I'm missing, not not that I really missed the deadline part of, of writing a column, but uh, but I'm I do I am discovering the sermons. I guess there's something else I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we really want to thank you profusely from the bottom of our hearts for taking the time to share with us today. And I do think as Frank said, it'll be a springboard for some future conversations that we might be able to have with you down the road here. So we just want to uh, ask God's blessing on you and thank you for the work you've done through the years and even now continue to, to be a part of as you reach out in, in your own ways to farmers and rural communities. We appreciate thank that very much. Thank you, Chris and Frank, for, for doing this. And, uh, and uh, uh, I, I hope this is one of those uh, breakthrough things that people can refer to uh, someone that's in trouble and they can listen and, 
and resonate and say, yeah, there are people that care and, and can help. It's, it's like uh, valfarmer.com. Uh, I was lucky to get that in the early stages, uh, early stages of websites. So valfarmer.com, and that's that's all I need. But I I am in the process of sometime this year renovating it to make it a lot more user friendly and lumping topics together that need to be and eliminating some of the duplication. So. Uh, it'll, it'll, I want to make it a more valuable resource. Uh, it's one of my goals. All right. Thank you both. Bye. Yes. Thanks a lot. God bless. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Faith of Our Farmers podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Faith of Our Farmers. You can find links to this week's podcast on our Facebook page under the podcast section. If you'd like to get a hold of us, there's two ways you can do that. You can get a hold of us first through our Facebook page. Uh, send us a message that way. There's also an email button on our Facebook page. You can email us at faithofourfarmers at gmail.com. If you know someone in ag that has a great testimony to share, or if you know of a ministry that combines ministry work along with agriculture work that you'd like us to feature, or if you just have a good topic you'd like us to talk about, please get a hold of us either through Messenger or through our email address. And lastly, and most important, if you're searching out there today and wondering about a, a faith walk with Jesus, may we suggest you go to this website, needhim.org. That's N-E-D-H-I-M dot O-R-G. On that website, you can find a lot of good information about how to start a walk with Jesus, or if you are currently walking in the faith and have some struggles and questions, this website is a great place, great resource to go to. Again, that's N-E-D-H-I-M dot O-R-G. Thanks a lot, and God bless till we talk next time. See you later.